It's the Last Call Podcast with Chris Michaels. That's right, I am here for another final episode of Broadcasting Brilliance, and I just want all of you to know out there that podcasting is incredibly boring to me. My background is in live broadcasting. It's in live radio. That's what's really interesting. So doing these podcast things, sometimes... I lack the brilliance that I know I have deep down inside of me. Because ultimately, like I said, this is rather droll. There is no real repercussions if I don't do something properly. If I want, I can just delete the whole thing and do it all over again or edit it. Which I never do, by the way. Everything I do is one take. I never delete it. I never... edit anything, I don't add anything, I don't subtract anything, this is all one take broadcasting excellence, that's how much of a brilliant human being I am, just a cut above the rest, and if you're listening to me, you're also a cut above the rest, because you are equally as, I don't know, just intelligent, just brilliant, lovable fuzzballs, all of us, all of us, every single one of us, uh, so a couple of things. Florida governor calls for special session to counter vaccine and mask mandates. Now, the good thing about Governor DeSantis of Florida is that he is now saying that employers who fire workers solely based on the vaccine mandate would be prohibited from enforcing non-competes with their employees. Uh, and there's another thing that's basically he's trying to say that if you're a business and you are in Florida, you cannot fire employees based upon their medical status. So it's something that is effective. Basically, what he's trying to do is he's trying to take the current workforce that's going to get fired due to Democrat-aligned businesses and Democrat-aligned cities and saying, okay, we're going to transfer this workforce into something else so they never really have to be unemployed They cannot enforce those non-competes. They just go right into another business or start a new business and continue to do what they have been doing all along. So that's a good thing for Florida. That's a good thing for business. Um, But another important story here that came out is the NIH admits fund, and this is from from Zero Hedge, but, uh, you know, they always mirror other sites. NIH admits funding gain of research or gain of function COVID experiments gives EcoHealth five days to report the data. So what does that mean? It means that Dr. Fauci, that hook-nosed, beady-eyed little Nazi, has been lying all along, and exorbitantly intelligent individuals like you and me We've been right the whole damn time because they admit right here that they have been researching and enhancing the dangerousness, if that's a word, of spike protein coronaviruses, the flu and the cold. And they've been using bats to do it. In a letter addressed to Representative James Corner, Republican of Kentucky, Lawrence Tabak, NIH Principal Deputy Director, cites a limited experiment to determine whether spike, pro- spike proteins from naturally occurring bat coronaviruses circulating in China were capable of binding to the human ACE2 receptor in a mouse model. Ah, there we go! So it is right there in black and white. 
Why is this person not in prison? Dr. Fauci is possibly, very well possibly, the biggest criminal out there today. And the people behind him are just as guilty. The people that run interference for him. Hello, all of the mainstream media. I don't know if any of you saw this out there. Um, this went viral, I think, yesterday or the day before. But you saw all of the mainstream media morning shows and the news programs like on MSNBC and CNN, all of them, all Good Morning America, all of them say, oh, Good Morning America, brought to you by Pfizer, 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 brought to you by Pfizer. So now you understand how all of this is taking place. Now you understand why there is no genuine critical argument that goes against constant vaccinations or goes against the idea that you need a booster to survive. The Pfizer report that came out today says that, oh, goodness gracious, booster shots, they're going to give you a 95.6% efficacy rate. So what is the real gist behind that statistic that Pfizer came out with? They basically said their first two vaccines, right? It's a two-dose vaccine. That two-dose vaccine doesn't mean anything after about eight months or nine months. That's what they're saying with all of this. The only way to maintain 95% efficacy in these vaccines, which is they stop all of the ickiness, is if you continuously inoculate yourself with booster. If you follow Alex Berenson on Telegram, he's been banned everywhere. He used to work for the New York Times, but since he started to speak the truth, they've banned him all across Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all over. So the only places that you can really find him are on Substack, uh, I think also, um, what's his name? The guy that does the podcast, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, I get Joe Rogan, there we go. The Joe Rogan podcast, um, he's on there often. He's also on a midday show, if you're in New York. Um, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton on 770 AM. He's on there probably about once a week. And he's actually telling the truth. So he posted something on his Telegram. Pfizer and BioNTech announced their vaccine is useless 11 months after dosing. And he goes, well, that's not how they phrased it. But it is a reasonable way to look at it. Remember, the booster is, is so, I'll just read the whole thing. But it's not only reasonable way to read their press release claiming that the booster is 95% effective. Remember, the booster is given to people who have received the vaccine. So you're talking about individuals that have got at least three inoculations. And when they tested a booster against a placebo, so basically nothing in those people, they found a 95% reduction in disease in people who received the booster. Where have you heard that figure before? Exactly, the same relative risk reduction they claimed in the pivotal trial last year. The only reasonable read is that the booster is providing temporary protection, similar to the first two-dose series, against a placebo, meaning nothing. 
But these are vaccinated people. There is one difference, though. The absolute risk, meaning if you, if you conglomerate every single possible risk, the absolute risk appeared at least two to three times higher in the vaccinated people in this trial than they did in the unvaccinated people in the initial trial. Basically, 110 infections per 5,000 in 10 weeks compared to 162 infections in 20,000 people in the same period because vaccines work. If you are vaccinated, he says, get ready to take boosters forever. So the main gist with all of this, thanks to Alex Berenson, is that if you got one inoculation, your immune system is demolished. And the only way to regain any sort of immunity to anything is by continuously inoculating yourself with whatever it is that they want to inject you with. And then they came out with, oh yeah, no problem. You can mix and match all of the vaccines and any of the boosters to your heart's content. Once again, we ask that question, what are the long-term side effects? What are the short-term side effects by mixing and matching mRNA inoculations that manipulate your mRNA to alter your DNA? They are, there's no other way around it. They're manipulating your DNA by giving orders, alternate orders, to your mRNA, your messenger RNA, the antennas for the DNA, the basically the architects for the DNA. That's what your mRNA is. It's an architect to tell the DNA how to build itself. That's all it is. And by doing that, you're going to get a, a stunning amount of variants and a stunning amount of people over the next, I don't know, two years, three years, five years, but it is very, very disturbing. But there's something else I wanted to touch upon tonight. And I am a former art historian major. And once I figured out, one, how boring the teacher... Well, I shouldn't say that. The teachers aren't boring. How boring the tests are if you want to major in art history. Basically, art history is... You, you, the way they teach art history is extremely moronic. You have art, which is all emotion. Everything in art is emotion, and you're looking at it, and it's frequency, and it's how it resonates with the artist, and also how it resonates with the viewer. But the way they teach art history is extremely mathematical. It's all memorization. It's all if this, then that, and so on and so forth, and it, it, it turns into something incredibly boring. So I dropped the art history minor, but I still have a love for art history. And it's interesting because the play Cabaret is all about Weimar Germany. So that's 1929, 1930s Germany before the Nazis really took power in 1932. But the Nazis were still present. And the reason why I bring up art is because art is generally a gauge of the social consciousness of a population during a particular cycle. And what you observe through art, whether it's through the cabaret uh, musical, which is, I think it was created in the 1960s, 1965-ish. Um, and you, you have to observe that art period, or, or I shouldn't say the art period of the 1960s. You have to observe what cabaret is trying to emulate on stage, which is the art 
period during 1929 and 1930 in Germany, particularly Berlin. So if you take that and you look at the Weimar Republic before the Nazis took over, it was essentially what you're looking at today. It was a debaucherous society. Drugs, sex, cross-dressing. Cabaret is all about cross-dressing. It's about dressing in drag. And it's also about how somebody impregnates somebody else, and that woman basically gets an abortion despite the man's real, uh, I guess, real passions to have that child. I don't know if he was actually passionate, but the idea of aborting a child during that time is not really something that you would do. Uh, the whole play takes place in something called the Kit, the Kit Kat Club, oddly enough, KKK, and it also involves some Jewish undertones and blah, blah, blah. But you also have to look at something called neoclassicism. And neoclassicism occurred in the late 1700s, early 1800s. So you also you have to consider what's going on at that time in the late 1780s, 1790s, 1800s. You had, during that time, the destruction of the idea of divine rule, divine right. In other words, people got sick and tired of royalty ruling over them. So you had individuals like Napoleon come to power and basically wipe out the authority of the individuals that have a divine right to rule over you. In other words, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Sixteenth, on and on we go those kinds of individuals. And so what they did was they removed the power from the elite and put it back in the hands of the average person, in this case, Napoleon. So what is going on during the art periods at those times? At the end of the Weimar Republic and the advent of the Nazis or at the end of divine right rule and royalty and at the beginning of Napoleon's rule, you have a sudden rebirth in what they would call in the 1780s, 90s, and early 1800s, neoclassicism. In the Nazis, it was the same kind of concept. They called it something else. They called it Nazi art. It's essentially neoclassicism with a smattering of Soviet art. In other words, people that come to a conclusion that society is at its ends... They need to look back on some other past life, past civilization to say, no, 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 we need to go back to that. We need to start bringing our morals back into society. We need to really chill the fuck out. We don't need to be cross-dressing. We don't need to be engaged in orgies. We don't need to be having three, four, five, six mistresses or male mistresses like in the French royalty, we need to go back to the basics. We need to go back to some sort of loyalty to ourselves and society. So that's where neoclassicism comes in. And they reference and emulate a lot of Greco-Roman architecture and Greco-Roman art. One of the most famous pieces of art is the Oath of Harati. Never could pronounce that properly, but basically, if you were to look at it, it was created in 1784, massive painting. It goes back to a story from Greco-Roman literature where the sons are taking an oath with the father, 
and they are saying, we're going to die to the death with you, and we're going to bring back this glorious type of Roman morality. You know, never mind the orgies, never mind the vomitoriums back from uh, Greco-Roman era, but the idea of loyalty. And so what you see in the Oath of Herati is a father holding three swords in one hand and an an outstretched palm, an outstretched hand uh, in the other, and his three sons are proclaiming their oath. Now, it's all in very, very dramatic poses, very, very wide stances. You see all of the musculature of everybody in this piece of art, and they are giving a salute to the swords, which are being held by the father, and oddly enough, it looks like a Nazi salute. It is an outstretched hand, and the palm is facing down, and it basically is what you would think it is. It is the idea overall that loyalty to your family, loyalty to society must come before everything else. That's what all this is about. If you look at Wikipedia, instead of the two cities, it's it's basically based on Rome and Alba Longa and stresses the importance of patriotism and masculine self-sacrifice for one's country. So you can see how we got this kind of theme going on with the neoclassicist movement and Napoleon, and then you go into the Nazi era, and you see that kind of movement with Weimar ending and the Nazis coming into power. If you've ever had the chance to go to the Palace of Versailles or the Paris War Museum, um, particularly with Versailles, you see Napoleon's influence. He goes in there and he creates basically a large stairway, a staircase of his artwork. And so you go from the royalty, which has this glorious, flourished type of artwork. The the canvases are literally tens of feet long and tens of feet high. So you can only imagine how big this is. It all has to do with this glorious type of individuals, mythology, things like that. And then once you get to Napoleon's part, it everything turns to stone. Everything is this granite. Everything is this Greco-Roman style architecture. It's very, very heavy compared to the energetically light forms of art from the royalty. But the only way you get to this heaviness is through a neoclassicist movement. You have to re- establish the idea of nationalism. Look at any of the artwork that comes through with Nazi Germany. You look at all, you just do a Google search, quick Google search. It all looks like Greco-Roman architecture. It is stunningly tall. If you're ever near it, you just, or not that you'd ever be near it anymore, but if you look at the Brandenburg Gate in, in Germany, it is stunningly tall. You look, and it's just enormous when you actually put it all together. So the point is here with all of this is that art tends to speak before the actual movement. Okay, so the neoclassicist movement, the Nazi movement, they come up with this neo, this Greco-Roman, I can't think of the word right now, but they echo Greco-Roman architecture to bring it back to what it quote-unquote should be. And you also have very, very dramatic pieces of art, like the death of Marat, 
and that's done by Jacques-Louis David in 1793. Now, if you look up that piece of art, it is a gentleman, he committed suicide in the bathtub, and he's got a, he's got one arm draped over the side of the bathtub, and he's kind of leaning over with that arm, and he's got a, a suicide note in his hand, and I, it basically says, you know, he, he's committing suicide because he's going to be put to death, and he's got to get out of it somehow, so he'd rather put himself to death rather than putting, or rather than having somebody else put him to death. But th before this piece of work by uh, David, he came up with a sketch, which I think the sketch is far better than the actual work. And it actually shows a sword dangling from the ceiling with the suicide note on the sword itself. So the sword penetrated the suicide note. And in there, I think, if I remember correctly, the quote was, um, uh, oh, I can't remember it. It's been years, it's been at least 10 years since I looked at that piece. Um, but it's something along the lines of, um, I'd rather die to myself or than die to a tyrant or, or something along those, those lines. It's that. It's a far more dramatic work than what's actually famous here. Um, but you get this idea of self-sacrifice for the country. Okay, so why am I bringing all this up? Why am I bringing up this neoclassicist movement? Why am I bringing up the stark realities of, of Nazism when they came into power? And why did I reference also cabaret? Because currently, almost 100 years ago to the date, is we are experiencing a degeneracy in art. And all throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s, you really had the rise of Luciferianism and occultism, and they called it live-action art or, or um, performance art, and you had all of this gross, disgusting, morose types of pieces. You know, uh, goat's heads being cut off, blood, overtly sexualized, um, scatorial, you know, scat art, basically people pinching off loaves on other people's chests, that kind of stuff. And and the CIA was really pivotal in funding all of that because they were trying to create a contrast between American art and Soviet art. And they were saying, look, in America, in the West, in England, France, you can do anything that you want. Look how free we are. And then look at the Soviets. Everything's all blocky. Everything's so dramatic. Just look at the, some of the pieces from Stalingrad or um, or uh, what, where else? St. Petersburg. Everything is this very, very stark, very, very dramatic, angular facial features on a lot of people. And now you contrast that with the West, and they say, anybody can do anything over here. But the problem is, is that there is no art movement right now. So if there's no real art movement in 2021, that means that on some level, there is a death or a dulling of the consciousness. And I believe it has to do with the powers that be trying to remove that VMAT2 gene from us, trying to remove the idea of connection. And what you're starting to see, but in reverse order, right? In the neoclassicist movement, in the Third Reich movement, you saw art saying to people, you need to be more masculine. And so what did you have? You had Napoleon's rise to power. Not only was Napoleon defeated once, he was exiled and then came back to France and made the whole army defect 
back to Napoleon. So he came back to France a second time and then gave everybody a whole bunch of heartache. What happened in the Third Reich? Art came out. All of a sudden, you had all of these movements creating a family. The, the nationalist movement. Look at what happened until 1945 You know, with that kind of movement. But what you're seeing now is that art is dead. So art is no longer steering the ship. You're having a reverse style movement where people on social media, social media has become an art form, where social media is now saying, no, 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 we can't stand this kind of debauchery anymore. We have to start creating a movement. And instead of the emotions in the form of art really influencing mankind's place in society, we're starting to see the reverse of that. Man is now becoming more masculine, and the art is following man's footsteps, other, other, unlike what has happened in the past, where art follows, where art creates the genesis of the movement and man follows art. Now man is creating the movement and art is following man. So what we're starting to see is a new masculine type of movement. Don't be surprised if the next wave of art is going to be these an echo back to Greco-Roman architecture, a Greco-Roman style of sculpture where everybody has this perfect style of physique. Men are perfectly toned. If you're doing Greco-Roman, they are also hung like cashews. A whole bunch of them are hung like cashews. So women are a bit, you know, they're Rubenesque. Huge boobies, big old badunkadunks, and some nice old thighs. That's how the women look in Greco-Roman art. Unless you're dealing with Michelangelo, where Michelangelo really took a male physique and put a pair of tits on it and said, Hey, look, ha <laughs> it's a woman. And that's not where we're going. That's more Renaissance than anything. But I, we're starting to see this kind of movement where art is becoming more masculine. And, and it's, it's taking the form of social media with memes. Art has become memes. So I hope art is now going to be seeing a rebirth into a neoclassicist style movement where we start to go back to our morals. We start to go back to being the custodians of our environment where we say, no, this kind of stuff isn't right. Just look at the vaccines. Look at all these inoculations. Oh, we're going to take dead babies, scalp, not well, in some cases, scalp them, but take their cells from dead babies, and we're going to create medicine out of it. And we want to inoculate you with it forcefully. That's not a moralistic thing. That could be a choice that you could make, but that's not entirely moralistic. The idea that Luciferians and, and devil worshipers and occultists are taking out billboards saying that if you outlaw abortion or if you limit abortion in any way, you are now reducing and also infringing upon our religious rights to actually put out and execute abortions. There's a, there's a debauchery to that. There's a hedonism to that. And that's where society is starting to see a massive schism. So hopefully the United States is on the right path and we start to see um, something grow out of this, a, a reorientation to uh, a, a loyalty to self, 
a loyalty to community and a loyalty to, na- to, to your nation, to your, to your state, to your nation that is above you, that is above the hedonistic individuality that we're currently experiencing. Above all else, I sincerely hope that we never, ever, ever, ever go back to Bauhaus. I hate Bauhaus. If there is one art movement that I cannot stand, it is the Bauhaus movement. If you've ever gone into a doctor's office and you sit in the Wassily chairs or the Wassily chairs, it's basically just a frame and a really, really awkward seating arrangement where you feel like you're going to fall backwards. That's Bauhaus, where Bauhaus only takes the basics of whatever it is you're looking at and completely deconstructs the artwork to its most structural form. So if you're looking at a chair, you're only going to get four legs, a seat, and a cushion. That's Bauhaus. It's ugly, it's disgusting, and I guarantee that somebody out there is going to say, I love Bauhaus. Well, you know what? Come at me, bro, because Bauhaus sucks balls. Anyway, that's it for me. A long-winded diatribe. Look into some of your art history. That's it for me. This is Chris Michaels, Last Call Podcast for the week. Look me up, find me, Last Call Caravan, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I post some things occasionally. Um, and just, just do it. Share me, like me, do all the things that you do and enjoy your weekend.